All right, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, um, that you promise to be present in this place. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds this morning uh, to what you have for us in the book of James this morning? Uh, Lord, would you shine light in any dark areas in our hearts and minds uh, and in our lives where we have room to grow, we're in room to repent and room to seek uh, your will for our lives. Lord, would we um, do and act as you have called us to do as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. I was gone last week, uh, which was great. I was in Texas with Grant and Laura Severson. Grant and Laura are students with the Harvest Workers Ministry Program based out of the Texas district of the LCMC. Um, and I teach with that program. And so they had their annual retreat. And it was one of those things where if we could just get ourselves there, it was all paid for. So it was a great deal uh, for us to get down there and get a cheap flight. Uh, and we drove out to Hill Country, west of San Antonio, to a place called Concan. I would recommend you visit. It is a beautiful area if you ever get a chance to go down there. Um, I did not see any rattlesnakes. Thank the Lord. Uh, but there was one six-foot one mounted, the skin of it was mounted on the wall in one of the houses we were staying in. And I said, no, thank you. I do not want to meet that one out in the wild. Uh, but we had a great opportunity to gather with uh, people wanting to grow in their faith. And uh, some of the next generation of people that will be leading in LCMC churches and in the kingdom of God. Uh, and I would think, speaking for myself, but I know for Grant Lord, it was a really encouraging time as well. Uh, to be around some leaders from different parts of the country and grow together in our faith. So I'm thankful for that opportunity, also thankful to be back here with you today. So over the last couple of weeks, we've hit on some solid themes in the book of James. These are very consistent themes throughout the scriptures. James isn't just the only one talking about these things. We see them uh, in the Old and in the New Testament from other writers. From January 21st, we talked about trials and testing, right? And how the steadfastness is something that the Holy Spirit wants to work in us and through us to maintain us and grow us and getting, getting us through those trials. And we talked about the inevitability of trials when we're following Jesus. Uh, if we do something for the Lord, if we live our faith according to how Jesus calls us to live, and we meet some opposition and some resistance, uh, N.T. Wright would say it's proof that something real and good is happening. So we should expect that. And then from January 28th, we talked about how God is the giver of wisdom and all that is good. How God is good, he is capable, and he is listening. So we can approach him with that sort of faith and that sort of expectancy that God is good and wants what's good for us. That he is capable to address any need that we have and that he is actually listening to us. Um, he's not distant or far away. And last week, Allison preached... Uh, on February 4th about hearing and doing God's word and how we cannot separate what we believe from what we do. In fact, we show what we believe by how we live it out and what we do. We know what we know to be true about God's word and his truth. It's something that is to be applied to our lives every day, not just held up here or here. It should be lived out. And we should be slow to speak, slow to anger, but quick to listen because the word of God is planted in us, and we see the benefit of that. So jumping into our text for today, James chapter 2, 1 through 13, um, this has to do with something that is pretty common in our culture and in our world today. Uh, it seems to be ingrained in our sinful human nature, and this is something called favoritism, or, or showing partiality, favoritism. Uh, the most basic definition of this is when we value some people more than others right? When we value some people 
more than others. We might value them with our time or our money or our affection. And at the end of the day, showing favoritism is going to lift one person up at the expense of someone being belittled, right? And so this is something in our culture that we deal with and we see it all over the place. Uh, Some examples in our world might be the treatment of the wealthy versus the treatment of the poor. That's something that James is specifically talking about in this letter to the culture there, which in many ways reflects the culture we have today. Maybe it's how the court systems work. Maybe it's how social media is used to fuel this versus this versus this. Even churches can fall into the trap of showing favoritism. And we had some good conversations about that in our Bible study earlier this morning at our adult education time. Now, this doesn't come as a surprise to us, right? Like, that favoritism is an issue. I hope it doesn't. Maybe you have a pure heart and you look at everyone with the eyes of Christ to a T and you've never struggled with this. But if you're anything like me, it's easy to fall into this trap. And we've all been there. We've given our time to the people that we like more. Or even if it might mean that some people that actually have more needs don't get their needs met, even though we could have provided for those. And we've silently or sometimes even publicly pass judgment on those people around us who might be different than us or have more or less money than us or have more or less talent in a certain area than us. There's all these ways that we categorize and we judge people. And James is getting right to the heart of it this morning in this text. So let's dig into this passage with a desire to grow and in our actions as we strive to honor Christ and all that we do, uh, may that be something that we can take steps towards this morning. So starting with James 2, verses 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and a fine clothes, and a poor man in a filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but then you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now this passage makes it clear. There's there's not a whole lot of depth of interpretation that has to go on with this one, right? You see the meaning. There is no place for prejudice in the life of faith. Ideally, in Jesus' church, it's not something that's here. This passage completely rules out pulling social rank in church, And the sentiment that it shows about the sort of socioeconomic status is at harmony with many other Old and New Testament scriptures that instruct God's people how to live. Picture what James is writing about here. Picture this story in your mind. There's a small little house church meeting in Jerusalem out on the outskirts, and uh, there's an apostle or a teacher or one of those early church leaders are there kind of to teach them and guide them and, and remind them of this gospel that they have decided to live for. And the leader of the house goes over to the person that is the best dressed and has the rings and the jewelry, like they mean something according to the culture and the society, and they invite them to come and sit on their right or on their left, at the distinguished seat maybe, as we see Jesus' disciples arguing about even in his ministry. And then those with the least visible wealth or or the dirty clothes or whatever that looks like, they're going to sit in the back or they're going to stand in the back, maybe there's not even a seat for them, Or, you know, you can come sit at my feet like the servants do. This is what James is calling out. And and I hope when you hear this, you're like, that just did not feel right. I hope that's what you're feeling. 
The wealthy are shown honor here. The poor are shown contempt. And James is writing that those who act in this manner, in verse 4 he says, they are judging with evil thoughts. They are judging in a way that is consistent with evil and sin, not in a way that is consistent with God's love and grace in his kingdom. So James is saying, hey, Christians are not to act this way. We're not to judge people this way, nor are we to show contempt to anyone that God created whom he loves. And I dare you to show me somebody, a person, that God doesn't love. Now there's a similar issue, uh, a little more modern. Um, have you ever heard of pew rent? Pew rent. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. A couple people? Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, did you know that even into the mid-20th century, 1950s, 60s, many churches and denominations practiced pew renting? Imagine if the seat that you were sitting in today was one that you paid X amount of money for for the year to be able to sit in that seat. Now, you know why the front rows are empty, right? Because they cost more, right? And so you're all just trying to get the cheap seats in the back. I get it. I understand. Although you up here, you're rocking it. Um, this was actually a thing practiced for hundreds of years in the Christian church. And, and I found evidence of it even happening in the 40s and 50s in some Episcopal churches. I found evidence in the mid-1800s that Lutheran churches were doing it. So it's not just the Catholics or this group over here. No, it was used by a lot of people that apparently hadn't read the book of James, right? So what, was hap what happened was this is how churches would kind of force collect the tithes and the offerings to pay their bills or to pay for the building that you were sitting in. And the closer to the front you were, the more you paid for those seats. Just like a concert or something where you want to be up front to be more uh, involved or right in the mix of it or you want to show your status, which is what so many people use this for. It kind of makes my blood boil and I'm really glad we don't do that. But this is an example how even something so blatantly against God's word can even work its way into the churches, which is why we have to know God's word and choose to live differently and live according to the truth, not according to the judging with evil thoughts that James is condemning here. So continuing with verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? God has chosen to have it be this way. He's elected to have it be this way. He's made it this way. For some reason, the poor, the poor have a special place in God's economy. Those that the world kind of tramples on have a special place in God's economy. God's economy equalizes the world's systems, right? It equalizes it because none of the value is placed on the stuff or the wealth the way the world does it. All of the value is placed on who they know in Jesus Christ. And when you're part of Jesus' kingdom, all of this evil judgmentalism goes away for the sake of something better. Knowing Christ makes you rich in an internal sense. And that is what James is saying is important. And it seems so much easier for those who are trampled on by our culture to receive that good news as it was in James's time and as it is around the world today. Most of the revivals happening in the Christian church across the globe are amongst the people whose lives look very simple and poor compared to ours. God has chosen to make it this way, and, and probably those people with nothing to gain on this earth look at the good news of Jesus 
for what it is and say, hey, I am rich eternally, and you can't take that away from me. N.T. Wright says that all human pride and all of our wealth, it pales in contrast to Jesus. And therefore, being in Christ as his beloved, that is the ultimate, eternal, permanent wealth. And James is saying, hey, this, this is what the church looks like. This is what it looks like. He continues in verse 6. He says, if you have dishonored the poor, or he says, you have dishonored the poor, if you've acted in this way, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? James is asking, hey, why are you honoring the people in the culture and the society that are oppressing most of the Christian church, which are the poor people of that time? And there's a little more history to that. It's, it's been happening a long time. This has been happening in the Old Testament, too, where the rich were using the court system and they were using their, their authority or their politics or their connections or their means to sort of take advantage of the poor. So, for example, you have the wealthy over here. They see a field over here that they really want to farm for themselves. And there's some poor people that own that field. They might find a false charge or some bogus claim to use the court system to take that field away from the poor and have it be theirs. And then they probably wouldn't even be paying for it in the end of the day. This is how the wealthy were oppressing the rich. Or, no, yeah, this is how the wealthy were oppressing the poor. Um, and this is something that we see all over our culture in many different forms today as well. As we know, money, money talks. And so James is saying again, if you are serving this wealthy, well-dressed guy in your church setting more than you are serving the poor person who has tattered clothes, why are you doing this? This is not how God looks at people. This is not how Jesus looks at people. This is not the good news which you have received and chosen to live according to. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, according to God's royal law, favoritism and discrimination are violations of the kingdom law of love. This is the same perfect law that we heard about in James 1.25. This is the same law. James uses a few adjectives. It is royal, it is kingly, it is perfect, it is good. And then James references love your neighbor as yourself. Most of you have heard that phrase before. Jesus talks about that. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, I'm going to read that passage for you. Uh, somebody is asking Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So James is reiterating the teaching of Jesus from the Gospels. Jesus, his brother, says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is like the apex, the pinnacle, the top of God's kingdom rule, right? This is how we're supposed to treat one another as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even when the kingdom of earth encourages us to act otherwise. Favoritism is the opposite. It is the antithesis of this command to love one another. Verse 10, talking about the law now, James writes, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For, for he who said, you shall not commit adultery, 
also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So the law is a whole thing in and of itself, right? That's how the Bible talks about the law. And that's why we, uh, we read in the book of Romans when Paul writes, all have sinned to fall short of the glory of God. If there's one little piece of the law that we break, we broke the law. It's not like if you get a speeding citation and you get found guilty of just the speeding citation. If, if you got a speeding citation and then you were found guilty of capital murder. That's what he's talking about. The law is this thing. Breaking one piece of it breaks the whole thing. And so it is our sin of breaking the law that separates us from God, which is why Jesus cares about all of those things that he wants to bring grace and forgiveness to in our lives. Jesus upholds this in Matthew 5.18. He says, not one iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So N.T. Wright looks at it this way, and I reference him a lot because he has a great commentary that kind of gives us some analogies on how to better understand this. Um, if, it's, if it's a piece of glass, take, take an example. I have a 12 by 12 square pane of glass here, and I drop it on the floor. It's going to break in some spots. It might shatter. It might be 100 pieces, might be two. N.T. Wright would say, if it's broken, it's broken. It's no good saying it's just a little broken. So if you have a little sin over here and no sin over here, there's no good saying, oh, I just have a little sin over here. We are guilty of breaking the whole law and need in Jesus Christ forgiveness from it all. Or it's like a flat tire, he writes. It's either flat or it isn't. It isn't just a little bit flat. Or an example from my own life, <laughs> Allison's laughing because she knows what I'm going to say, um, if I have some cold symptoms, just like mild cold symptoms, I will say, oh, I just have a touch of a cold, right? Does anyone else use that phrase? Oh, it is just me. Oh, we got somebody. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't know where I picked that up, but if it's not a bad cold, I will say, oh, I just got a touch of something. And Allison will remind me, if you have a cold, you have a cold. Call it what it is, right? And so I always say now that I have a touch of a cold just to make her smile. So... But we have that mentality, right? We're always downplaying the reality or the truth of what has happened. And so if we, if we have a sinful behavior over here that is against the life that Jesus has called us into and the grace that he's called us into, we, we tend to compartmentalize that and say, we're really good here. We just need to work on this. When in fact, our whole life, our whole lives needs to come under the authority of Jesus Christ. So what James here is saying, there's no use for the Christian to drive on the flat tire of social ranking or judging based on socioeconomic status when we have at our hands the full inflated tires of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The kingdom of God is so much better to do that. And if we drive on that flat tire, if that's what we choose to do, we're breaking the law of God's love and grace. And so we need to repent of that. And we're accountable to not just to that little bit of the law, but to the whole law. Verse 12, James writes, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says to speak and act. Like we heard last week, act according to the word of truth. Apply it to your life. Don't just listen to it and then walk away. True freedom that he's talking about here is the ability to obey God and do what pleases him. Oftentimes, we think that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want, but that leads us into bondage. That leads us into chains. 
True freedom is the freedom to obey God and do what pleases him, which is what we were created to do, friends. It is our hardwired purpose in life, including being free from sin through the grace that we experience in knowing Jesus Christ. So if you're guilty of breaking that whole law, there is freedom in Christ Jesus, there is grace, there is forgiveness. And James alludes here that when we show no mercy to others, that that's going to come back on that person as they stand before God. It's one of those fear of God thoughts in the scriptures, right? Now James is writing to Christians. He, he knows that they've already received the gospel and he's not worried so much about their theology here as to how they're acting according to this good news, right? But somehow it seems that this mercy that we fail to show others, we're not living in the way that's consistent with Jesus when we do that. And God wants us to think about that and take that seriously in how we treat other people. God's mercy is holy, and it doesn't tolerate favoritism of any kind. <clears throat> and why? Because in God's economy and in God's kingdom, James writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so often we choose to live judgmentally rather than as people of mercy, showing God's love. This is true of the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, and it's true today. Showing mercy, it is the better way, friends. It is the better way. Because it will show the love of Christ. And that is what God has called us to do. So what conclusions can we draw from this scripture passage this morning? Uh, a couple big things. Uh, first, holding faith in Jesus Christ, while also holding partiality or favoritism, they are incompatible. Let's, let's just view it this way. You need both hands to pick up Jesus, and you need both hands to pick up favoritism. And if you're going to pick up favoritism, you're going to be setting Jesus down. So it's better to just hold on to Christ, right? Those two things are incompatible. We cannot say, I'm following Jesus, and then have those evil judgmental thoughts in our hearts. We want to repent from those so that we may fully follow Jesus with all that we are and experience his grace and forgiveness. N.T. Wright says, too, the world is constantly sizing people up and ranking them, right? And it's a temptation for us to do the same, even as Christians, even in the church. Well, here's the thing. God's church is one where Jesus has leveled the field according to his grace and love. His grace, his love, the faith in Jesus Christ, that is now the definer of what is wealth and what is rich and what is status. Jesus plus nothing, right? And then the last thing I think we can think about as we reflect on our own lives, how, how can we live in a way that doesn't feed into this favoritism that the world loves? How can we live in a way uh, that honors Christ and what he desires for us. Uh, and three simple things, I think, for that. The first is that we remember our own place. We remember who we are. And most of you would say, hey, I am here because I am a sinner in need of a Savior, right? We recognize that we have sinned and fallen short. We've heard this good news that Jesus is the Savior, the forgiver of sins, and the grantor of eternal life. And we want more of that, right? So remember your own place. You you have been and are a sinner until Jesus returns. But you're also redeemed, and you have hope, and you have life, abundant life to live according to, which is our witness to the world around us, and you are a beloved child of God. So that can be your first foundation. The second, if you're struggling with this, remember that the person that you are judging or the group of people that you are judging or showing favoritism for or against, they are also beloved children of God, even if they don't know it. 
They are also in need of Christ's love just as much as you are in need of Christ's love. And they need his grace and forgiveness just as much as all of us. We both have the same sin problem, and the same eternal solution is available to us through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And then the third thing that we can do to work on this in our lives is we learn to live according to the Spirit and the truth. God's word, his truth, it grounds us in his principles, his values, and his heart. So the more we know of it, the more it will change how we live as we act accordingly and put it into practice. And then God's Holy Spirit guides us to live out and act in the faith that we live and act according to God's love and grace and mercy. So we want to fill ourselves with the truth of God's word and and better understand it. And we also want to be led by the Holy Spirit who is never going to lead us to live in contradiction to God's word. I would venture a guess that if you kept those few things on the front of your mind this week or over the next few weeks, and if you prayed for these things to become real in your life, you might see a wonderful change in how you view people. And some of the things that maybe weigh you down about the world and the people around you might not matter as much if you're able to view yourself and others through the eyes of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be a people in a church who operate according to God's triumphal mercy and his love and his grace. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this teaching from James today. We thank you, Lord, um, that your mercy truly does triumph over judgment. Uh, We've experienced that, Lord. We know that it is true. So, Lord, would you help us to live accordingly? Would you help us to root out any parts of our lives through your Holy Spirit Help us to root out any parts of our lives that are in contradiction to your mercy and your grace and your love. So, Lord, we confess that to you today. We need you. We need your guidance. We need your truth. And we need your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, help us to be mindful today and the next day and the next day of how we can live in a way that views every person with the same love and the same grace and the same value that we know Jesus Christ views us with. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.